you would not mind turning with me back to the book of Acts, chapter 19. We're going to begin in, in verse 21 today. It's on page 928 of your pew Bibles. We won't get all the way to the riot, but we'll get led up to it. How's that? Acts 19, starting in verse 21. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time... There arose no little disturbance concerning the way, for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together, and the workmen in similar trades, and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth, and you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made of hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Stop right there. Let's pray that prayer we pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth... And the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. I just want to say, last week I made a reference to an Old Testament story. I was talking about not treating God like a good, a good luck charm, and I made a reference to a, an Old Testament story where the Israelites did exactly that the one where the Ark of the Covenant was stolen from the Israelites, and I said that the Hittites stole it. I even tested you and asked for confirmation. And everyone smiled and nodded, including my wife, who taught that very story a few weeks ago in children's Sunday school. But it fell to young John, Angelari, and our friend Simeon to do the duty of every college-aged whippersnapper and point out the mistakes of their elders. So after the service, they told me it was the Philistines, not the Hittites. And as modern-day Philistines, they should know. (laughs) But I just wanted to let you all know that you all failed the test, and I'm very disappointed, and you should try to be more careful in the future. (laughs) And also, since last week, two people have since then admitted to me using a handkerchief, but they refused to raise their hands when I asked that question last week. You guys really need to up your participation game. You've got to wake up. This isn't the State of the Union. You have to stay awake for these things. Come on now. <laughs> Anywho, today we get back to Paul's adventures in Ephesus. Two weeks ago, we heard about Paul laying hands on, on 12 Ephesian disciples and how they received the Holy Spirit. Uh, last week, we saw the depth of Ephesian superstition, really, right? Uh, Some people were stealing Paul's hankies to cure their sick friends, and also a a demon-possessed man beat the snot out of seven guys who were sons of a high priest named Sceva. So basically you had, you know, PKs, preacher kids, who thought they could just throw the name of Jesus on like cologne and they would smell like roses, and it didn't end well for them. And, And we learned that wearing the name of Jesus without knowing him is dangerous. It doesn't fool the demons, and it certainly doesn't fool God. 
Now, in all of this so far, you'll have noticed that Paul has been relatively passive. Uh, After laying hands on the 12 disciples in Ephesus, we have very little info about what Paul has been doing, very little in the way of specifics and no dialogue at all since he talked to them, right? Uh, We we know he's been lecturing and preaching in the hall of Tyrannus, uh, but we also saw a hint last week that he's still making tents. People are stealing his aprons. Most men don't wear aprons in public. Uh, But they might if they're working with their hands. So the picture we get is basically a repeat of Paul's method in Corinth. Rather than street preaching all day in the marketplaces, which he had tried at Athens, he seems to be working most days while preaching as often as he can in this hall. Uh, He's doing the whole bivocational thing. His ministry is a a part-time thing. But the Holy Spirit keeps filling in the gaps and and doing a lot of the work, and and the church keeps growing, right? Now, At this point in our story, Ephesus has been pretty thoroughly evangelized, right? Luke said in verse 10 that all the residents of the entire province had at least heard about Jesus. And after the incident with the sons of Sceva, he says in verse 20 that the word of Lord increased and prevailed mightily. And perhaps because of this, Paul decides it's time to move on. Uh, But there's one more major event that Luke sees fit to mention, a thing that happens here in Ephesus, apparently toward the end of Paul's stay. So it says here, again, uh, after these events, after everything else we heard about the the, the demon-possessed guy and all that last time, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to go through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. All right. So Paul obviously feels pretty good about things. So he's ready to go. Uh, I've heard that the average tenure for a pastor in America is about seven years. It's probably gone down. Uh, My guess is that most pastors move on because something goes wrong You know, most pastors don't up and leave without some sort of problem that precipitated it. We've been very fortunate here. You've only had one pastor leave you, and that was after 37 years. He did his time. Uh, And I've sometimes wondered whether pastors would be better off following Paul's model here, you know, leaving on a high note when the things are going pretty well, right? Uh, It's the same reason Georgia is trying to talk me into selling the red car now, because it's running good right now, right? And and the stickers are legal legal right now, so sell high, right? Right. And, of course, it's the very reason I'm suddenly reluctant to see the car I hate so much go. Um, It's why professional athletes tend to retire only after their level of play is declining into mediocrity. But that's not Paul. Paul Paul is the kind of guy who wants to leave because things are going so good. That's that's what he does. So Paul determines he's going to retrace his steps from the last journey. Uh, He's going to go back to Macedonia, meaning Philippi and Thessalonica, Berea, and then he wants to head back to Achaia, which would mean Athens and Corinth, you know, southern Greece, and then he intends to head back to Jerusalem, probably to report in with the brothers there, and then he just kind of throws out this non sequitur, I'll simply have to visit Rome at that point, spoken like a true tourist, and it's going to be interesting to see just how God fulfills that particular wish in coming chapters, but it's also interesting because it shows that Paul is a dreamer. Rome isn't exactly next door to Jerusalem, right? So Paul's already thinking ahead to a fourth missionary trip, uh, one that will go even farther and even deeper into the belly of the beast than any missionary had ever dared up to this point. So Paul is not just a dreamer, he's also a planner. He's planning this in his mind before he's even half done this journey. 
And, you know, kudos to him. I'm speaking at a conference next week. I haven't prepared a single message yet, so I kind of hate guys like Paul. They show me up. But um, this is why we hired Pastor Green. Uh, Somebody needs to teach me to think ahead. So uh, Paul is a thinker, so he sends two of his buddies ahead of him to Macedonia, Timothy and, and a new guy named Erastus. We don't get any further details here about him. Uh, so they'll go there, I gather, and, and book the hotel, right, and um, presumably find a place for Paul to preach. And again, we're seeing the church go from meeting on the streets and the highways and living rooms and you know marketplaces and transitioning into reserved meeting halls, rented space. Uh, the church is an urban institution, if you want to think of it that way. It's becoming more established. And that's all well and good. But as soon as Paul books this passage to Macedonia, he's just bought his tickets, right? Then the trouble starts. Go figure. Verse 23, about that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth, and you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul is persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Just when he was out, they pulled him back in. Al Pacino, Godfather 3, it doesn't matter. Now, first off, I, I thought it was interesting that Luke here refers to the Christians as the way. Uh, And it sounds like one of these trendy hipster churches with strobe lights and smoke machines, but it's actually, you know, it's a cool name. It's it's got this ancient pedigree. It's kind of mysterious sounding and ambiguous. It could mean a number of things, almost like Christians already spoken a kind of code about each other. Uh, But the last time Luke used this phrase was back in chapter 9. And in that chapter, Paul, who was still known as Saul at that point, was hunting down members of the way. And now he's like one of their star players. So it's kind of wild how things have changed, and, you know, just dropping this name back out there. But the trouble begins with a guy named Demetrius. And it seems like the rest of the town is pretty cool with Paul at this point. But this guy has an axe to grind. And it's financial, primarily. Uh, Demetrius is a silversmith. That's a pretty important craft in those days. You don't meet too many silversmiths now. Nobody uses real silverware anymore. It just tarnishes, right? Who needs an extra chore of polishing your eating utensils? I can't even get the kids to consistently load the dishwasher, let alone spit shine every piece of cutlery. So most of the silver in my house is in the form of old coins that I keep squirreled away. What's great about those is that polishing them actually would reduce their value, so I have an excuse to just let them sit. You know, they're a very low-maintenance kind of thing compared to silverware. And I don't consider myself obsessed with silver. I do appreciate that it has a certain beauty, uh, the way it rings. If you drop a silver coin on the table compared to the clunk of nickel, the patina that never looks like the corrosion that copper you know, seems to gain over time, it's very nice. It's a very fine metal, and that's what Demetrius works with. It's a durable, valuable, rare, attractive, expensive metal. So this is not a craft where you would make many big items. This is not construction, right? You're working with your hands. You're making small trinkets of value. For some people, that means making fancy utensils. Others make jewelry. uh, Governments will make coins. But Demetrius, he makes shrines. He's in the shrine trade, specifically shrines of Artemis, things that would be for personal worship in the home for the Greeks. Now, Artemis is a big deal in Ephesus. 
And we're going to see more about that in just a minute. But she was like the patron of Ephesus, right? So this guy can make a living just making these shrines. This is his only business. And ever since Paul showed up, he's been undercutting the trade because this guy depends on Artemis worship to make sales, and less devotion to Artemis means fewer shrine sales, and slower shrine sales means less profit, and a whole pile of expensive silver, which Demetrius had probably already bought, that has no market demand. At this point, it would be more valuable as coins. And as a coin nerd, I happen to know that not all silver is valued equally. You can increase its value. My silver coins are mostly, they're pretty common. They're, they're, they're mostly worth whatever they would be if I melted them. It would be the same, meaning they're so damaged and worn and common that they wouldn't fetch much. But the same silver can become astronomically more valuable if it's in good shape and has a rare mint mark on it or a rare date. So if I had a Morgan silver dollar minted in Carson City, that would typically be worth hundreds. But if you melt it down, the silver's worth about 20 bucks. And that's the kind of crisis Demetrius is facing at this point. He has a stockpile of silver that he spent, you know, good money on. And his job is to add value to the silver by making it into shrines. And then he has to charge top dollar for the shrines. And if the shrines aren't selling, the silver's only worth what he paid for it. Maybe even less by the time you're done exchanging. So Demetrius, therefore, has two options. Either learn to make something else out of silver or else complain to the union. And I guess he doesn't want to try his hand at making something else. Can't really blame him there. I don't personally know any silversmiths, but I do know a goldsmith. Not as a last name either, like I know an actual goldsmith. I actually had a customer in Chestnut Hill when we were in Philly who was a goldsmith, and he was a really nice guy. He had a shop on the hill just a little ways from my shop and uh, where he designed all the jewelry himself. Only one time did I use his services. I couldn't afford his stuff. But he, he agreed to fix my wedding ring, which had been cut off at one point. That's a long story for another time. It may or may not have involved skinny dipping on a bet, but that's, again, for another time. Uh, now, this guy, this buddy of mine, customer, he didn't do ring repairs. He's an artist. He's not a common jeweler. So he has no interest in spending his days resizing and repairing wedding bands. That's not business he wanted. That would be a major sacrifice for this guy. It would be like asking Leonardo da Vinci to paint your living room a very nice beige or something like that. Like, you don't, you don't do that, right? Now, my friend, Caleb, the, the goldsmith, he did do my ring, and he did it as a personal favor to me because I sold him the best bacon in the city. But he was not interested in changing his business model on my account, you understand. And neither is Demetrius. Because why should he change just because some guy Paul showed up and everyone's turning into iconoclasts all of a sudden, right? So Demetrius goes the second route and he complains to the union, so to speak. He gathers the craftsmen that he works directly with, but he also brings in the workmen, it says, in similar trades. I.e., these could be his competitors, and you only band together with competitors when you perceive an outside threat that's bigger than your rivalry. And Demetrius clearly feels that Paul represents a threat to the entire industry. Now, it is a fact that people tend to universalize their problems. They assume that my problem must be everybody's problem, right? And we also assume malice must be involved. There has to be a villain, 
If business is slow for me, everyone must be suffering, and it must be somebody's fault. Somebody has to be to blame for my problems. This is true with most of our troubles, and perhaps especially when it comes to money. Someone must be out to get me. My predicament is unfair. The system is unfair. Somebody's got to do something. And in fairness to Demetrius, there really has been a shakeup in Ephesus. And we, we saw it starting last week. The burning of those magic books, you'll recall, represented a market shift. These are things that were valued at 50,000 pieces of silver, and they were burned. That's a lot of value to just jam, you know, vanish into, into the ether, right? So the gospel has an impact on the economy. That's unavoidable. If people really believe this Jesus stuff, it turns things upside down. Money becomes less important. Things that had value before become worthless to us. And the fact is, market swings are unpopular. I don't know how many of you follow the recent events a couple months ago, I guess, at this point, with GameStop. GameStop, as some of you folks know, sells and trades on like old Nintendo games and things like that. Uh, the market predicted that they were on their way to bankruptcy, and because of that, a bunch of young folks started to buy up GameStop stocks just for spite, pretty much. And lots of hedge fund guys lost like millions of dollars, and the markets were really like irritated for a while, right? And uh, markets don't like surprises like that. That's not supposed to happen. And, and Paul's message is therefore an unwelcome shock to certain aspects of the Ephesian economy. But to get all the craftsmen on your same page, you have to do more than just complain about yourself. That's just like normal stuff you do with a water cooler. In the grand scheme of things, the market may not like big changes, but it doesn't care about you personally. We all know that, right? Uh, if Demetrius says his business is slow, honestly, who cares? Uh, maybe my business is doing okay, right? It's kind of like that old saying, I forget if it was Reagan or something, that the recession is when your neighbor loses his job, a depression is when you lose yours. It's kind of like the same principle here. The economy can be bad for some people, but still okay for quite a few others, right? And Demetrius knows this, so he has to demonstrate that this problem, it's bigger than me, that there's trouble here in River City. My kids know that reference, not all of you may. We just watched The Music Man last week. I don't know how many of you have not seen The Music Man. If you have not seen it, you have to go fix that at some point very soon. It's great family entertainment. It's about a fly-by-night traveling salesman who sells bands and instruments, uniforms, and stuff. But he's a complete musical fraud. My favorite song is near the beginning. He needs to convince the people of this city in Iowa that they have huge trouble that can only be cured by starting a boys' band. He needs to create a problem so that you know, he can feed them the solution and make him a lot of money. And he zeroes in on the only new thing in this little podunk town, and that's a pool table. He does a whole song convincing everyone that this pool table, with the corrupt, it's going to corrupt the youth and destroy the community if you don't watch it. And he sounds every bit like a televangelist in the process. It's a very funny song. That's Demetrius here. He's like Robert Preston in The Music Man. Either you're closing your eyes to a situation you do not wish to acknowledge, or else you do not realize the caliber of disaster that is represented by the presence of a church in your community. Demetrius needs a villain to fixate on, and he found Paul. He basically is telling the union that this weird new religious mania is not only bad for his business, it's bad for all business. Basically, you could say in union terms, Paul is a rat. 
I'm from Philly. In my hometown, it is union-dominated. They call anyone not using their services rats. And the union guys will go to the non-union work sites with a giant inflatable rat sometimes. It's like 30 feet tall. And then they just yell at people that are going in and out of the shops and things, you know. And and they do this every time a gas station remodels or whatever happens. If it's non-union labor, they're there. You know, if Comcast builds a skyscraper and doesn't use enough union labor, they show up there too. And in Demetrius' eyes, that's Paul. He represents a new competing religion that doesn't need their labor. He's building an entire movement, and he never throws them a bone. Unions hate that. Paul is not kissing the right rings here. But Demetrius also wants to make clear, Paul's message is not only bad for business, it's bad for society. What does he say in verse 27? And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Demetrius wants you to know he's not all about the money. No, sir, he's not without a heart. There are certainly bigger things than money, like Artemis. It's really hard to overstate how important Artemis was to the Ephesians. She was the Greek goddess of the hunt, the wilderness, wild animals, the moon, and perhaps most importantly, chastity. Her Roman equivalent was Diana. Georgia suggested I use Please Stay With Me, Diana, as a title for this message. Of course, that assumes anyone here remembers the Paul Anka hit from the 60s, and I think I need need better clickbait titles, babe, but (laughs) whatever. I'll I'll decide by the time we leave. Um, But Diana of the Ephesians was a big deal. And unlike some cities that celebrated numerous gods and goddesses, Ephesus had been centered on the Artemis cult for untold centuries. She was a favorite. She was like the personification of Ephesus. She was basically symbolized, she symbolized nearly a thousand years of the city's history at this point. This temple predated the Romans, it predated Alexander the Great. Uh, No one knows when the original temple of Artemis was built, but it was destroyed in a flood nearly 700 years before this story takes place. A second temple had been built in 550 BC by the founding emperor of the Lydian Empire. That one got burned by an arsonist a couple hundred years after that, supposedly on the very day Alexander the Great was born. And some years later, when Alexander had conquered Ephesus, he offered to rebuild the temple. And the Ephesians were a very proud bunch, and they refused. They said to him, it would be improper for one god to build a temple to another, which is a very polite way of telling the emperor who just conquered you, no thank you. (laughs) So after Alexander died, the Ephesian people financed the rebuild themselves. It was a true public works project in that sense. So that third temple, the third temple of Artemis, the one that was standing in Paul's day, this was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was beautiful. It was huge. The people came from all over the world to admire it. The the temple is their identity. This is who we are. It's synonymous with your national identity. And that's why Demetrius brings it up. He's not just a suffering businessman. He's a patriot. He's worried about his city. 
So Demetrius, he ultimately sees a threefold danger in Paul's gospel. The first is that their trade is going to fall into disrepute. The second is that the temple could be counted as nothing. And worst of all, Diana herself could be deposed from her magnificence. In other words, the gospel threatens the financial, the patriotic, and the religious life of Ephesus. And Demetrius isn't wrong here. The gospel is a gut punch to the way the world does all of these things. So it shouldn't come as a surprise when the entire union begins chanting the name of Artemis, great as Artemis of the Ephesians. And we'll see next time when you get to verse 34, the entire city ended up doing this, and it says that they did it for two hours. They're very protective of the imagery of Diana. Now, again, we're not going to finish the story today. I choose to leave us in suspense to see how Paul handles this new emergency next week. Because cliffhangers are good. Who says TV's not educational? I've learned a lot. But even stopping here, this story does reveal a lot because I think it demonstrates where Christ and the culture collide. And Demetrius sees this collision. And he's on the other side of it, and and sure, he's driven by the money primarily, but really, in two sentences, Demetrius is able to summarize why Christ and the culture will have such a hard time getting along. There's a lot of truth and insight in his words. It's weird. It's just like last week when you got so much insight from the demon-possessed guy. He not only smells Paul the rat, he smells the danger behind Paul's message. See, there's a broader culture war going on in Ephesus. It's a question of worldview. And that's what gets these people all worked up. The riot in Ephesus is not about Demetrius' balance sheet. It's a battle for the soul of the city. And they might not have had a problem with Paul's message if Jesus and their idols could just coexist, right? Everyone wants to have their cake and eat it too. And we all have idols. We can't even see them most of the time but we're all attached at least somewhat to the idols that Demetrius is talking about. That's true of us in the church, too. It's the stuff people are always willing to fight for and even go to war over. It's our treasure. It's our homeland. It's our values. That's what's at stake here. And the reason I say Paul could have avoided this mess is because mankind, we have an ingenious way of taking our idols and trying to harmonize them with our Christian faith, don't we? That's why churches are so often tempted to water down the gospel, to avoid offense. We're very good at convincing ourselves that our culture, or or even if it's just our subculture, has his stamp of approval. And this occurred to me this week as George and I were reading up on Artemis, Diana. If you think about it, what made Diana such an important symbol to defend? Why are the Ephesians so enamored with her? And we started to realize our suspicions became this, that it's the same idol and image that men fight for in every age because Diana is the symbol of wilderness, right? Wild animals, untouched, pristine, unsullied by the hands of men. She is the ultimate symbol of purity. Her number one defining characteristic is that she is a perpetual virgin. Sound familiar? They even referred to her as the Lady of Ephesus. Just add the possessive pronoun, Our Lady of Ephesus, and now you have a Christian shrine and pilgrimage site. 
Demetrius could just as easily be selling many Mary grottos. In a lot of ways, part of what's sad when you reflect on church history, it's like the church didn't so much destroy the cult of Diana. I mean, within 400 years, this temple was gone. But in many ways, they co-opted it over time and ultimately slapped Mary's name on it. And even today, so many of our Catholic friends perpetuate this. And ultimately, in that theology, Mary's glory is very similar to Diana's, isn't it? And the Ephesians defended her with the same ferocity, purity. She's pure. Ever virginal. And purity is beautiful, but it makes a really particularly nasty idol. And lest I be seen as picking only on our Catholic friends, let me be clear that we are no less susceptible to the allure of the virtuous woman, the idol of purity. Please remember, it is the Protestant churches that produced the whole purity movement. Joshua Harris was one of ours until he wasn't anymore. But how many of us sink or swim with our own sense of virtue? When purity becomes an idol, it's a terrible judge. And, and my only point there is that we all have these idols, and, and you can see them by what makes you feel most threatened and where we most get defensive. And maybe we get defensive over our money. It's tax season. I, I think I can relate to that. I have spent more time on the phone this week trying to reach a live person at the IRS and complaining about it than I spent in prayer all week. That's not an exaggeration, and it's nothing to be proud of. Me and the IRS should probably both be ashamed. Maybe we get defensive of our, our country the way Demetrius did. You know, I, th I think that's a particular weakness in our church. We feel like we're under constant threat the culture is changing. I hear from a lot of you, especially since the election. Maybe it comes from too much OAN or Glenn Beck or something. But I'm no better because I spend way too much time listening to Ben Shapiro and such and wondering how we're going to fix these things and not enough time trusting God with the issue. And perhaps more pernicious, I think, within the church circles is, is our defense of virtue. This is the worst because it sounds so deceptively holy. And we saw it in the purity movement, for sure, but that was really nothing new. That's, an old, that's old as the hills. And we still hold up purity as a virtue. It's one of the reasons I kind of get irritated when we, when we sing all the verses of St. Patrick's hymn, I bind unto myself the purity of virgin souls. I mean, what nonsense is this? Demetrius himself could sing that line without batting an eye, I think. But whatever it is, the purity of virgins, the purity of doctrine, purity of worship, purity of style. But the only purity that matters is Christ's. We see this idolatry of virtue every time we lean on our own purity instead of Christ's. And brothers and sisters, I believe we all do this all the time. We have unspoken purity tests, and it makes us judgmental of others. It makes us judgmental of ourselves. It puts us in the place of judge and place of Christ, and it keeps us from focusing on him and his purity. So I don't know about you. I can actually relate to Demetrius. I don't mind Jesus until he starts messing with all my stuff. I like Jesus to fit into my life somewhere. I don't like to do it the other way around. I like a gentle Jesus, an encouraging Jesus, but when he hits me in my wallet, or if he knocks my city or my country down a peg, 
or takes my loftiest virtues and stomps on them and tells me they're garbage? That's not really what I had in mind. But Jesus, presented in full and faithfully proclaimed, will not spare space with any of my idols. And it doesn't matter how virtuous they are. And he refuses to conform to my culture. So Demetrius knew this was a problem, that there was trouble in River City. And he was raising the alarm that the Jesus Paul was calmly proclaiming represented a revolution. It was not a violent revolution, but it was a revolution nonetheless. Now, this passage is a clear warning for us. First off, not to embrace our idols. That's always a good lesson. But it's also a reminder that the gospel, faithfully proclaimed, will eventually collide with the culture around you. And once again, Paul is on the sidelines in today's passage, right? He's not picking the fight. He's actually gotten really good about that over time, hasn't he? And yet, the culture smells a problem. There's a conflict. No matter how polite you are about things, there's a conflict. So I think what is a worthwhile consideration for us is, does the world around us perceive our gospel as a threat? Is anyone even worried? Because I begin to think that if not, then we're doing something wrong. Does anyone legitimately consider our church, Lehigh Valley Presbyterian Church, a dangerous force in this city? It's easy to find churches, and and we talk about this some, churches who capitulate to the culture and who put a Jesus stamp on whatever the culture wants. Uh, And we have an easy time finding that in progressive churches and stuff. I don't think that's our problem here. But conservative churches, we have our own idols. Maybe they look a little more like the cult of Diana, where purity is our highest value. We throw off a, a sort of God and country vibe, but with a little too much of the country. And sometimes I wonder if we're making enough impact to even feel like a threat. Are we even impacting our culture? Does the culture even know we're here? Are we big enough rats that trouble finds us? I think if we're honest, we'd much rather be right than be listened to. But it really shouldn't be an either-or kind of thing. It's tricky. It's something to pray about. It's part of the reason that the session is going to be talking about these things and praying about them on Tuesday, and we would sure appreciate you praying with us. But just to close this up, I'll say the good news in all of this, and there's always good news, amen? The good news is that the Holy Spirit is still working, and Jesus is building his church. He said he would, and he is, and he will keep building it in Allentown, and he will build it all over the Lehigh Valley. If it were up to us, we'd screw it up. The good news is that it is not up to us, and so the kingdom will grow. And conflict will come, and God will be sovereign, and Jesus will still be our shepherd, and the Holy Spirit will still be at work in us and throughout the valley. So the story does always have a good ending. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you again for your word. 
We thank you that you are sovereign over all of these situations, Lord. We thank you for the example in today's passage, Lord, that just demonstrates, as we've seen again and again in Acts, that the conflict with the world really is unavoidable. It's not really a matter of uh, finessing it and having just the right style, Lord. There will be conflict eventually because the worldviews are just not compatible. We who bow the knee to Christ... We can't bow to the same idols, Lord, and I know that we are guilty of trying to a lot of the time. I pray that you would help us to see the ways that we do that, Lord, that we are really uh, echoing some of the concerns Demetrius had. Lord, help us to put to death the idols in our hearts and to trust not in the, the purity and loftiness of any of those things, but to seek only the purity of Christ, Lord, the only purity that matters. We have nothing to offer, Lord. Help us to trust in nothing else. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever.